Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, Converts Edition. Now, so far this season, we've learned a lot about how the brain resists changing beliefs, and we've had a chance to talk about the effect of mass protest on what the society as a whole believes. But this is our first show to feature an individual who is a convert. But I think you'll agree it's worth the wait. Our guest is my friend and friend of the pod, Derek Black. Now, today, Derek is a graduate student in medieval history. He lives in Washington, D.C., and if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see he's been at several of the Black Lives Matters marches there. He's a social justice warrior on Twitter and has occasional jab at conservative commentators and whatnot. He is basically like almost every other friend I have, except not even 10 years ago. He was an ardent advocate of white nationalism with his own white nationalist radio show. He founded Stormfront, which is still one of the main organizing and social hubs for white nationalists across the country. David Duke is his godfather. What happened? Well, it would take a book to explain it in the detail it deserves, and fortunately, there is one. Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist by Eli Saslow, You can read it or you can listen to the show we did with them in 2018. I decided to ask Derek back because my own view of his story has changed a bit. I used to think it was a conversion narrative about leaving white nationalism. I've come to believe, and I know he has too, that the more important conversion experience he's had is about his realization that renouncing outspoken white nationalist activism only let him join a society where white nationalism is still the organizing principle. We just don't talk about it. So he converted again to what he is today. Derek came on the show to talk about going from being a racist to not a racist to an anti-racist. Derek Black coming right up. Derek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Anna. So I want to start in the in the middle of the beginning of your story, basically. Like, we know sort of the context of your childhood, what sort of beliefs you were kind of born into. But what I'm really curious about right now is when did you start to realize that your family, your circle— wasn't the same as what other people might consider mainstream. I I think it's interesting when people ask that because before I started getting that question of when when did you realize that your family was a 
uh, white nationalist activists and that that wasn't normal. I had never thought about anyone not being clear about that. Uh, it, I think there's another version of this that I, I discuss with anti-racist activists these days, and that is everybody sits around the table and says, when did you realize that you were white? Like, what is the moment in your history where you realize that whiteness was a category and you were that or that you were black or that you were so like whatever your racial category was? And whenever I'm in those circles, it's like I, I didn't know people had a moment where they realized that because I was raised constantly with the knowledge that everyone who I loved was a white nationalist activist and that the world was becoming a, a hellscape and that integration was slowly destroying the world and that my family had spent 40 years before I was born trying to fight that and that that was not the mainstream opinion. Like there was never, there was never a, a revelation of that. It was just what was at the dinner table and in the home. And there was never a point where there weren't reporters coming over to the house every few weeks to conduct interviews about my dad's website. And uh, so there was, there was never a revelation moment. It was just that was the world. You know, I debated with myself about whether to ask that question because I had a feeling, you know, you probably get it a lot. And I made myself laugh a little bit by thinking of asking you, and when did you realize that the rest of the world was also white nationalists? <laughs> <That actually, laughs> when did you realize that your views weren't weren't actually outside the mainstream? That is a great question. That That is what I spend most of my time thinking about now, that it is fundamental to my family's worldview. It's not that they're weird. It's that the rest of the world is denying that they agree. Like they they would they would tell you that they would not be trying to win a political point. They legitimately believe that their view that white people are superior and that more maybe more importantly than that, all races want to live and talk to people who are like them and that it's this really fundamental part of humanity is something that everybody is on board with, at least especially white people, but that we have this ideology of anti-racism, we have this ideology of multiculturalism, but people don't really buy into it. And they'll give you a whole spiel about how Look where white people live. They go into the suburbs. They buy houses with other white people. When black people move into the neighborhood, they leave. When they can, they try to get their kids into schools that are majority white. They vote for politicians who look like them. They are constantly trying to advocate for white interests. And so how is that different from white nationalism? And like that's, that's the whole spiel, is that all you have to do is get white people to be more explicit about it. You don't actually have to change their opinions. Well, let's, let's fast forward. Because here with friends like these, we are very interested in conversion experiences. And I understand. I have I've read your book or the book about you. And this was definitely a process, a, a longish process. But was there an aha moment for you at any point when you were like, wait a minute, I am no longer okay with being this version of myself i i'm tempted to say there was no aha moment and because in retrospect it was years of little discussions they, they were all important uh, some of them were about the evidence that i believed some of them were about uh how i how i should feel about the negative impact i was having on other people 
but they were all cumulative. And and I look back on it and I think the the decisive moment in when I was no longer advocating white nationalism, I was no longer a white nationalist, I was something else. I was pushing back. I was doing something. It's the moment where I announced that, where I wrote this public letter saying it. And I think that that's actually fairly accurate. I think looking back, all the incremental things meant that I would say, okay, I don't believe in biological determinacy of race. I don't believe that the way white nationalists are saying crime is actually predicted on race is statistically accurate. Like all these little factual things didn't mean that I was willing to say, oh, white nationalism is terrible. People advocating white nationalism are hurting people. The identity is bad. It was only when I was willing to have this conversation where I remember uh, the primary primary person, uh, Allison, who was having these debates with me in college, had this statement that, so you say you disagree with 95% of this worldview. Uh, you can't believe 5% of uh, community's beliefs and still say you're a part of that community. You can't say that you condemn what they're doing, but still say that you're okay with people in the news saying that you're a part of that. You have to actually condemn it. And I think like that's actually the real moment. It's the moment of saying, I condemn this. I will not be labeled as part of this. I work against this. And that, that, that was fundamentally different. And was that a single conversation with Allison where she pointed out your 95 versus 5 ratio? Yeah, I, it, was, it was one memorable one because uh, I was really resistant. I didn't want to condemn my family. I didn't want to condemn uh, their friends and all the people who had been doing this for years. I wanted to just not say anything anymore. What did it feel like? I mean, I just remember it as being gut-wrenching, that realization that it had been, in retrospect, easy to accept better facts. Uh, it, it had been, it had felt hard at the time to be confronted with, uh, here's evidence for how I think the world works and it's it's wrong, and trying to assimilate that and figure out what it means for me. But to get to a point where none of it holds up, it's not factually accurate and it's actively harmful, but there's still this other step where I have to let my community know that what they're doing is wrong in every sense of the word and that that's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt me. It's going to create this, this break that I'm never going to be able to come back from. And that that was gut-wrenching, that, that it is not enough for me to internally decide what it is I believe, that it doesn't matter until I've actually done something about it, and that I didn't want to do something about it. Was admitting out loud that you were going to step away, does admitting sound like the right word, actually? Because when I hear you talk about it, it sounds like a kind of admission, like a um, a taking of responsibility might be the better way to put it. I think so. Um, I think, like, I think a lot about what does it mean to make a public statement. Like, which one is which one was more real? 
uh, I, I had spent a long time in these private conversations really wrestling with the implications of white supremacy and my role in it and the 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 violent outburst from this movement that continued to that day and what was my responsibility for that what was my responsibility for the harm uh that was happening to people like what where was my culpability and and trying to just figure that out and that was very real and that was really hard but in a lot of ways, it did not feel as hard as making a public statement about it, like doing something in front of other people, in front of my community, in front of other communities, making this statement that here's what I believe and here's what I do. That, in some ways, it feels like it shouldn't actually. You know, maybe just looking at it on on its face, maybe having private conversations or really being with an intimate person and deciding who am I and what do I believe, that should be the important thing. But what really was difficult and what really changed everything was my like profession in front of other people in front of the world. Well, that's an important part of religious conversion experiences, you know, is to make your profession of faith. It's, it's not lost on me. <laughs> so you wrote a letter to Southern Poverty Law Center, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And were you on pins and needles? Were you feeling anxious? I had this conversation with one of my uh, family members who did not know that the next morning this letter was going to come out. And we just had a fairly normal conversation. Uh, We talked about whatever. I can't even remember what we talked about. But I knew that this family member was so committed to white nationalism and it was so embedded in our relationship that it was really possible. That was the last conversation we would have because the next morning they were going to read this letter and everything was going to be different. And it was just sort of surreal being in this space that realizing that tomorrow morning everything is going to change. And is that what happened? Did everything change? I think so. Yeah, it was some ways the reaction I expected. Um, it was hurt, uh, was anger and fear. And my my dad's first response was to think that it was fake. Uh, sent me an email saying he thought my account had been hacked and this, and this letter was being uh, presented as if I'd written. And so then I confirmed I actually wrote it and he just hung up. And we had days of these kind of calls, like extremely intense uh, questions of what is our relationship? What is the future? What does this mean? Why didn't you tell us? Um, And them being very clear that they can't ever go back from this. I want to go back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation about how initially you kind of felt like once you denounced white supremacy, you would be like, all right, well, everybody, I'm normal. Cool. Like, I'm done. Let's, like, all be cool together. Is that, that is kind of what you thought would happen? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, so the white nationalist worldview in some ways prepared me and in some ways really led me astray. uh, Because like we talked about earlier, White nationalists in some ways accurately believe that white supremacy and racism are very real and they are forces at work in the beliefs and actions of white people everywhere in the world. And 
that's not inaccurate. Like they, they, they kind of have that political perspective pinned in a way that a lot of liberal commentators pretend like it's not true, like that doesn't exist. And white nationalists are, are, are accurate in some ways in saying that. And in a way they're not accurate is they think that everybody in the world is, who is not a white supremacist, racist activist, is working against white supremacy, is like attending anti-racist book clubs and is trying to figure out ways to integrate the school system and is figuring out like promoting affirmative action. Like they, they believe that if you're not a white supremacist, like you are trying to make the world more open and safe for people of color and really change the immigration laws. And that that's the part where I got out there and realized, no, um, the, the activists who are working for this stuff are as, as small in numbers as the white nationalists who are working against them. I think that's really important for people to think about, that you thought you were g- going to the other side, let's say. You were like joining a new team perhaps. But it turns out a lot of white people are just bystanders. They just kind of go about their business. And did did you feel like that, was that a surprise? Is there a moment, is there is another, is, are there any conversion moments or realizations to, to that idea? Yeah. I, I'm somewhat ashamed at this point that when I wrote that public letter, and I broke with my family, and I had this falling out, my decision was, I've done enough harm here. Nobody needs to hear from me. I can't handle this anymore. I am done. I will study medieval history. I will try to live an average life. I will try to not engage on issues of race. I will let the world sort of move and bend towards justice, and uh, I've done enough here. And I spent three years that way, where there were people very close to me in my life who did not know about my history. They didn't know about my background. They didn't know what I had done, what I had gone through, how I had gotten to where we were at that point. And it, it, it felt sort of similar, actually, to those conversations about you can't just stop being a white nationalist. I had to explain why it was wrong and I had to show an example of pushing back against it because it's not enough to stop doing bad things. You have, if you've done bad things, you have to try to undo them and push forward and create, create something better. And I spent several years realizing that that was an obligation in general. It wasn't, a, you, you write a letter and now, now you've, you've made your statement. Uh, this is a continual, gradual process. And the people doing that work are outnumbered. The people doing that work are under-resourced. The people doing that work do not have a platform. The people doing that work uh, are often not listened to. And that if I felt strongly that white supremacy harmed people, that I had harmed people by using it and promoting it, that that I had an obligation to try to do something, uh, whatever that meant. So I want to revise, revisit and revise my metaphor then. If we look at this in terms of teams, it sounds like you had to, you made a clean break with the white nationalists. You're like, no longer, not on that team anymore. I denounce that team. 
And then you kind of assumed there was an anti-white nationalist team out there somewhere. And that you could just, like you said, like you would be able to just be a person in the world. And then you had the realization that, oh, no, I need to do more because there aren't that many people fighting against white nationalism. And my view of the world that everyone else, that there was a team, is faulty. And I I need to actually switch teams rather than kind of just be in the world. Yeah, I... I realize another way to put this is that I realize that the diagnosis that the public facing political white nationalists give is accurate that white supremacy is endemic, that white people will vote in white politicians who will ignore communities of color or actively harm them, that opposition to anti-racist initiatives like affirmative action, uh, opposition to integration in neighborhoods, opposition to social programs that help uh, promote racial equality. Like these are things that white communities will consistently oppose. Uh, that it is not, it's not, it's a fairy tale that producing better outcomes for black people, native people, Hispanic people is, is just, that's a, that's a direction and opinion that we're all on board with and, or, or that even like liberal white communities are on board with, that that's not true, that this comes about because of deliberate activism by a small group of committed people who are willing to make the sacrifices to get that message out there and make change. Uh, and, and that, that, that was the realization that, I don't want to stretch this too far, but the same idea that white nationalists have that if you feel the world is wrong, uh, if you feel that something is broken, the way you change that is by spending your days figuring out ways to organize, ways to get the message out, ways to raise money, ways to uh, enact concrete change. Like that, that belief that drives white nationalist activists to do stuff is actually how this works. That anti-racism is not obvious. It takes deliberate action. It takes uh, a theory of change. It takes planning. It takes connecting with other people who are working on that. And that for the most part, people are neutral. And that whenever people are neutral, the bad just gets worse. And maybe we should be explicit when you say people, right? White people, yeah. Yeah. So I now want to ask you if there's a moment where you came out as an activist, but that probably is a less clear than sending a letter somewhere. Uh, I mean, it's clear to me because uh, I spent those three years just refusing to speak out. It wasn't like people left me alone. I, I was still consistently getting emails from organizations and from journalists and from uh from people who wanted me to do something right like this was the the rise of black lives matter there were protests in the streets of ferguson there were there were lots of moments where it was really in the mainstream conversation that 
white supremacy is very present. Barack Obama is the president, and that is not creating some post-racial world. Um, police violence still exists. Neighborhoods are becoming more unequal. Like the, all of the problems of white supremacy are getting worse. And then I was this prominent white nationalist who condemned it a few years ago. And whenever people would reach out to me, I would say, I, I have made a statement against this. I think, I think I've done enough. And I made that choice for years. I made that choice when uh, Dylan Roof killed all those worshipers in an African-American church that he had gone on websites that I had contributed editorials to. And he had said those were the websites that made him realize that there, there was this conflict and that black people hated white people and that he had to create a race war. Like I saw that happen and continued to say, I've said enough. I have done it. Don't you think I've done enough damage here? And I continued to do that up until a point when I didn't anymore. So what was the thing you did? What was your, what was your public debut as an anti-racist? Fairly mundane working, working with, you, you might be familiar with this, working with a journalist, uh, you know, I, like, working with a, a, a long-form writer, Eli Sasla, who, who did eventually write uh, the book, expanded it, uh, right, called Rising Out of Hatred a couple of years ago. Um, and like that was that was uneasy. That was uncertain. Like, I don't want any sort of sympathy for feeling really insecure about talking about the harm I've done. There are lots of people in the world who want a a heart-wrenching story from someone about something. And I am not interested in that. And, and I think it's, it's counter to, uh, it's counter to what, what 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 is the social good is telling heart-wrenching stories and having a compelling experience is not in itself good for anyone and i really always wanted to avoid that i always wanted to avoid uh going to what some speaking thing where you tell your your engaging story or writing a book or writing some op-ed about here's what happened to me i always wanted to avoid that because it's not really my story. Like I'm, I'm centrally involved in it. People want to come read about it because they hear a white supremacist is now an anti-racist. And so they want to hear that story. But what I always wanted to be there was the fact that it's a story of people who are harmed by white supremacy. It's a story of people who are harmed by white supremacy and yet continue trying to work against it. And even sometimes reach out a hand to a white supremacist who they want to like kind of explain why you're why you're causing my family down the line to be murdered like that that story is not like the story about white supremacist changes their mind i feel is kind of gross actually the story is how is white supremacy hurt people and trying to figure out how to use the way we like to hear about stories to tell the story of people who don't get books written about them. Like, that was, that was what I was always trying to figure out. I'm going to jump in for a quick break for some necessary compromises in the name of income and be right back. Are you looking for a fun way to pass the time while engaging your brain and enjoying breathtaking visuals and a gripping story? 
you know, something to take your mind off things and enter into a different world, perhaps a candy-colored cartoon world? Your answer is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game anyone can play. It is made for adults. You can spend as much or as little time in the game. You can do it in little bites or you can just get carried away. I find myself doing it in little bites instead of, you know, scrolling the news. I'll pull out the phone if I got some time to wait and I'll go and kill some slugs. That's what you do in the game is you kill slugs and you collect your little friends. Collecting friends is a is a nice thing to do. I remember collecting friends when we could collect friends. It is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike any other puzzle game out there. Best Fiends updates monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. It does not require the internet to play. You don't need to have Wi-Fi or use cell data. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 1 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or at Google Play. That is friends without the R. Best Fiends. Finding the perfect present for your dad can be tough, especially if you don't have the luxury of celebrating Father's Day together in person. If you are a constant listener to the show, you may know that I am my dad's biggest fan. I just think he is the bee's knees. He has been supportive of me my entire life. He taught me how to be a feminist. He also taught me how to shoot a gun and build a fire, cook pasta, pancakes. That was about the time he and my mom got divorced and he hadn't really learned how to cook yet. So there was a lot of pancakes for dinner. No pasta for breakfast, although we we may have done that once or twice. Anyway, I love my dad. We're all getting older. I'm going to give my dad the most meaningful gift of this year, a chance to connect with me and everyone else in the family through StoryWorth. StoryWorth is a fun and meaningful way to engage with your family, especially relatives you might not get to see very often. This online service helps your loved ones share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's the gift of spending time together, whether you live together or not. Every week, StoryWorth emails your family member different story prompts, questions you might never have thought to ask, like, what have been some of your life's greatest surprises? Or what's one of the riskiest things you've ever done? Or what can you not live without? Or when have you been the bravest in your life? Reading the stories together is fun and makes your family feel close, even if you're not physically you know, within shouting distance of one another. After one year, StoryWorth will compile every answered question and photo you choose to include into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. Uh, My family, which is, to be honest, basically just me and my dad, will treasure this book forever. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this year with StoryWorth. Get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com slash friends. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash friends for 10% off. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Nutrafol. Women don't talk about thinning hair, but nearly half of all women experience it by as early as age 40. If you're one of them, you know it can feel scary and stressful, which only adds to the problem. Take charge of your hair growth and make the next few months the time you grow thicker, fuller, healthier hair. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow hair as strong as you are, and it's physician-formulated to be 100% drug-free. 
They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. On top of thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients will also help you get a better handle on sleep, stress, skin, nails, and libido. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. And when you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free and you can pause or cancel anytime. Does it work? Yes. 77% of women saw improvements in just 90 days. Whether you're experiencing thinning or not, you deserve hair as strong as you are. Nutrafol can help you achieve your best hair growth naturally. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com using promo code FRIENDS to get 20% off. This is the best offer available anywhere. You get free shipping on every order and 20% off at Nutrafol.com promo code FRIENDS. Best offer anywhere. Go to N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com code FRIENDS. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In this second segment, Derek and I drill down into criticisms of these mass protests. This is something we talked about the last time you were on my show, which is that when I saw the coverage of your book and the big story that was in the post, the excerpt, I felt like a lot of well-meaning white people really wanted a how-to book from you. They wanted a, okay, this is how it works. This is how you do it. And it can happen. Yay. Yeah, because I don't think my story works that way. Uh, it's it's true that there's a lot of general use principles there that, uh, that like, I'm willing to talk all day about the power of contact and, and community engagement. I think that there's a misunderstanding that you throw facts at somebody and then they change their worldview, and that is not true. You throw counterfacts at someone and they want to get into a fistfight with you. They shut down and figure out ways that they can counter that. The, the more embedded somebody is in what they believe, the easier it is to counter any fact you throw at them. And so there's a general idea that you change somebody's mind by changing their community, and that happened to me. That's true. I think that's generalizable. But it's also missing the point when we're talking about white supremacy. Uh, white nationalism is a social movement that advocates for white supremacy, but white supremacy is the way our country is designed. It is the reason why white people make so much more money and have so much more wealth. It is the reason why white neighborhoods have better schools. It is the reason why we fight racial equity policies and they get killed in Congress. Uh, it is because white people have power and it is because what we call racist beliefs are the continuation of these multi-century systems that disadvantage people of color. And 
if we approach that with let's have good dinner parties, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe we will just say this over and over in this podcast, is that the difference between your family and the rest of the world to a certain degree was how well you saw the world as it was. How you, because you looked through the lens of whiteness, saw white supremacy everywhere. And surprise, white supremacy is everywhere. There is something that my father often said that I think is an insight. That, that he, When he was talking about recruiting, he would always say, uh, we are trying to find people who start a sentence with, I'm not racist, but and to engage and have a conversation about whatever it was that came after that sentence to, and, and that the end result of that is them advocating white nationalism. And that is a common sentiment. And the implication of that is that you can look at the world as it is, you can say that there is enormous racial inequality, that, there, that it is increasing, that it, is, that it will not change without steadfast policy intervention that white people are advantaged in most of our systems and you can look at that world and say it's either absolutely horrendous and has been working against human interests for centuries or you can look at that world and say so all of our heroes endorsed that world all of our founding fathers created it all of our grandparents benefited from it. Maybe that's the way it should be, and why should I feel guilty about my world the way it is? I didn't build it, and maybe this is the way it should be. And in this, this is definitely the most benign view of a white nationalist, but that is a real kernel of how they get there. And it's trying to look at the world and say, is it fundamentally broken? Or is every one of my ancestors actually someone I can be proud of? I want to ask a question about you, which I think you will probably reject the premise of, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Prefaced by the thing that we have been looking at so far in this series has been why converts are so rare, basically. Uh, that the human brain resists changing, especially changing beliefs that it's held for a long time, especially changing beliefs that are core to someone's identity. And we've looked at exactly what you mentioned before, that if you throw facts at one of those brains, you actually wind up activating the neural pattern of the old belief, right? Like, you will re-inscribe that old belief. So why you? Like, so I, I have spent a lot of time trying to figure that out myself because the experience of it does not feel like uh, a psychology experiment. It just feels like life. You know, it feels it's painful. It sometimes it hurts. Sometimes you realize you've been hurting other people. Sometimes you try to you try to figure it out. Uh, sometimes you just don't. Uh, and by instinct, definitely when I was found out on this campus was not, I wonder how I can change myself. It was, how can I change them? Uh, I had a very strange circumstance that I had spent a semester on this tiny 800-person campus that was 
majority white, but really committed to social justice, something that they discussed all the time. There was events around, something that people tried to figure out, how can they participate in? And I spent this semester getting to know people in that world. So by the time that I was outed and there's enormous discussion about what do we do with the racist, the explicit radio show hosting racist on campus, they weren't strangers on the internet. They were people I'd have classes with. They were people who I knew I couldn't dismiss. Uh, I knew I knew they were smart. I knew a lot of their life experiences. When people were coming and saying that this makes me feel unsafe because my life experience has uh, brought me and my family members to harm many times because of these people, I couldn't say that's a stranger on the internet. That was a person I had a class with. And that leads me, looking back on it, to say, true, sure, like facts and discussion were super important because I saw myself as somebody who believed things because of reasons and facts and that your feelings might be important, I guess, but really what is, what is true is more important. Like I saw myself 100% that way. And so having those discussions was essential. I was not going to say, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess if it makes people feel bad and it harms people a little bit, then, you know, we should dismiss this whole truth of race realism like that. I don't think that would have ever happened. But the only reason I was willing to hear those facts and hear how am I impacting people, how is this harming you, is because there was a community that I couldn't just look away from. I, I was connected to, I cared about, I had some compelling reason to hear what is it that you're misunderstanding, right? Like that was where I started was not how can I change my beliefs to accommodate you. It was like, what part of what I believe are you misunderstanding? Uh, and that was an, an intro that allowed for the years of chiseling away at my beliefs, chiseling away at my reasons, chiseling away at my whole self-conception of how do I see the world? And I, I don't think that's so strange. I, I, I'm curious about some of the other people you've interviewed. I really have a suspicion that in each case, it's not going to be, I went into a library and I read books for several months and then I came out with a new worldview. I think it's always going to be, I was connected to people who made me really interrogate what it was I was doing. There's been a lot of talk about what these uprisings will do. You know, I feel like that's the hand-wringing that I see, lar from, largely from, from white commentators. Uh, there is a concern about uh, backlash. There's also a concern that white supremacists are thrilled about them and that want them to go on. Do you have any insight on those questions? I worry about being a person commenting on it because, you know, it's by, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to, to give thought, like, to clarify my position that the protests are extremely inspiring. I went to one in D.C. yesterday. Uh, during the day, uh, we kneeled, we had moments of silence, we, uh, we, called out for the memory of people who had been murdered. We showed up. It was, it was hours and hours out in the sun uh, making a real statement that something is broken. And it was extremely inspiring. And that is very good. Um, like that is something that has to happen more because protest is coming from somebody who 
knows that activism is how things change. It, it is not running for office and having little campaigns that makes the world different. It is organizing, it is pressure, it is boycotts, it is protests, it is civil unrest. Like this stuff is all absolutely essential. And, you know, you get into the hairier parts of property destruction. And I think that the quote that you see on the internet speaks volumes that lives and property, like there is a real value judgment you have to make that if people are dying, if people's lives are being ruined by a system, that destruction of property is not great, but it is not something that we can just say, well, people are going to be murdered. Let's just make sure that targets don't get ransacked. Like this is a conversation about what kind of country do we want to be? And all of this goes together and it is important. It is, it is the wrong instinct when white communities look out and see property destruction and say, well, that invalidates complaints about police brutality. That invalidates complaints about segregation and bad schools and bad health and the enormous disparity between black communities dying of COVID and white communities dying of COVID. Like, to look away and say, well, I don't like how people are doing something is an inherently racist. Fire is a dangerous metaphor here, but I'm going to use it because it's what occurs to me. It feels like people who who feel that property destruction disqualifies the protests themselves are looking at a fire and complaining about the smoke and ignoring the fact that shit is on fire. And so if we sit around and talk about the smoke, I mean, yeah, smoke is annoying. Like, I don't know. Yeah, well, let's, we should do something about it. But the solution is not about that. It's about the fire. There's a way that I've come to think about how do we talk about this that I also preface this with, I don't know if this is the right avenue to talk about it or not, but I come from this background of white nationalists who spend their lives trying to find people who say, I'm not racist, but, and they recognize that those people are not fascists. They're not segregationists. They are just as likely to live in liberal white communities as they are to live in conservative white communities. It is a, a very predictable white response to accusations of racism is to say, I'm not racist, but, and then say, I think that those people are not saving enough money. I think those people are not investing in whatever. And to not look at just what choices do do your neighbors have? What choices does your community make? And in what ways are the resources being hoarded? Uh, and the, the latter is the anti-racist perspective. And so I, I think a lot about how do we frame this in the very real way that this hurts white people too. Like I, I was at this march yesterday and I was kind of struck by the fact that it was a, a really integrated crowd. Uh, but a lot of the white people had signs saying things like, I'm not black, but I hear you. I'm not black, but I'll fight for you. And like, that's a, it's a great sentiment. It really makes a lot of sense. But I was 
sort of struck by the perspective of white people there that this is not my fight. This is not my cause. Uh, this is something where I'll take my afternoon to fight on behalf of someone else. And I don't think that's actually true. I think that racial injustice is not something that just harms black people or just harms the uh, Hispanic community or just harms people of color in general. Injustice like this creates the conditions where COVID can spread to all communities. Uh, there are plenty of economic studies that show how GDP is much lower than it could be if we had uh, equality of opportunity, equality of income among races. If, if black people weren't deprived of income, we would have a bigger tax base, like really stupid quotidian stuff. If our cities were not segregated and the resources were extracted from half of the city, we would have a more healthy public transportation system. Like there is a bunch of really stupid clinical stuff that slowly amounts to the realization that white people are living in fortified neighborhoods in the suburbs, often because they're afraid of the injustice that exists in the community a few miles away that they are trying to keep their kids away from the kids of other people and other families who are trying to get enough food to survive while they have enough to send them to private school. Like that is not a situation that's good for the white family that's doing that. We have a situation where black families have 10 cents for every dollar that white families have in wealth. And that is not something where you say, well, oh, that must really benefit the white families, right? They've got so much more wealth. That is a system that creates an unstable society. That's a system that where mass protests and property destruction are absolutely logical and inevitable, where our choices are going to continue to create an unstable living condition for all of us. And I just think a lot about how can we make it clear that anti-racism is not some self-sacrificial thing where I'll spend some of my time to try to help others, but it is how do we fix our own communities so that we are all healthier, so we are all happier, so that we are all less afraid. And that is it for the show. If you are enjoying this new approach, having a theme for the season, now would be a great time to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. And of course, recommend us to friends who might be, you know, struggling with what's happening and wondering if the changes we're seeing are going to take. Are we having a white light moment as a country? Hmm. I hope you are well. Here in Minneapolis, things have calmed down. And in fact, I have seen a lot of community organizers start to tell people to take a break, get some rest. The journey is going to be long, and we have a lot to do. If you are a regular listener to the program, you know how I feel about such admonitions. Because the journey is going to be long. And we need you. So, please, take care of yourselves. <laughs>